Well, if you've been joining with us over recent months, we've been exploring this theme of reconnection. Reconnecting with God, reconnecting with each other. Now, we're not putting that theme to one side just yet. We will be coming directly back to that in a few weeks' time. But that period of time will come to an end. You know, we will move on from thinking about reconnecting with one another and reconnecting with God. Because the gospel is all about making new connections, isn't it? It's all about going beyond those reconnections with each other to thinking about who can we introduce to Jesus? Who can we share the gospel with? The church never exists just for ourselves. We are a commissioned people, people called to sharing the good news. Can anyone tell me what happens at 3 p.m. today? An alert will happen. If you've got your mobile phone, don't be surprised when it makes a loud noise at 3 p.m. Apparently, if you're a Newcastle supporter and you're in St. James's Park at 3 p.m., it'll be deafening because 60,000 mobile phones will all go off at once. What's it a warning for? Anybody know? It's a trial for... Go on, Nick. He's been reading the news. Well done. (laughs) 10 out of 10. Now, we had a pastoral team meeting on Thursday night. And as I was driving to the meeting, I had to stop my car. And the reason I had to stop my car was this was happening. Two ducks were crossing the road. And um, they were not in any hurry. (laughs) And so I stopped the car. And these ducks waddled across the road, as only ducks can. And there was a little lad stood at the side of the road watching. Presumably he was with his mum. And he was watching, fascinated, as the traffic started to build up. As these ducks, totally oblivious, waddled away from one side of the road to the other. And then when they'd crossed, he looked at me and gave me a big thumbs up (laughs) as I then drove off. I wonder whether you live life as if everything is an emergency and everything is incredibly urgent or whether you live life more as a mallard. (laughs) We've got all the time in the world. Nothing phases us, and we will just plod on, come what may. Just hold that thought for a moment. We'll come back to that in a minute. I want to take you to a very different scene, away from the ducks, to a man sat in a prison cell, probably sometime around AD 66 or 67. This man's name is the Apostle Paul. He's now in his 60s, and he's going to write his second letter to Timothy. It's the last letter that he will ever write. Now, this takes place three and a half decades after Jesus has died, he's risen, he's ascended, and the Spirit has been poured out. And during that three and a half decade period, churches have been planted across the Roman world. The gospel has found its way right into the imperial capital, into Rome itself. People like Paul, Peter, Barnabas, Timothy, Luke, they've gone round planting churches. And Paul has done more than his fair share of the labor. He has written a massive chunk of what becomes the New Testament, admonishing, encouraging, directing churches. But as his life draws to a close, he sits in a dank and dark and dreary Roman dungeon. He's been arrested because he's a a Christian. Now, the historians of the next generation, people like Eusebius and Tertullian, say that not long after Paul wrote this letter, he gets executed, sometime probably in AD 67. But Paul, at this point, he has deep concerns for the church. 
He's concerned about false teaching creeping in. He's concerned that actually the church will get off track with the gospel. But he's also encouraged because there is a generation of leaders coming up underneath him. A generation of leaders of which Timothy is part of them. Now I wonder, do you ever think, I wonder what kind of person Paul was like. Have you ever, have you ever pondered on that? Would he be the kind of bloke you'd want to go out for a coffee with? Would you want to have him round for dinner? Now, I get the impression Paul would have been like one of these kind of really restless kind of people, always on the go, a lot more emergency than Mallard. He would be that kind of, you know, just going for it all the time. He's passionate about the gospel. He has so much energy for proclaiming the good news. And so with this sense that his end is near, he writes to Timothy. Now, Timothy is a second-generation Christian. He's been mentored by Paul. He's been encouraged by Paul. And you can find out a lot more about him by reading 1 Timothy. So if you've got time later on, have a look at his first letter to Timothy. But Timothy is very different from Paul. He's not an obvious candidate for church leadership. If you like, he's more mallard than emergency in his character. Now, for a start off, he's young. He's he's probably half the age of Paul. Now, in Roman times, apparently, life was divided, adult life, into two sections. The first part was called your juvenus. I don't know if my Latin pronunciation is right. From which we get the word juvenile, part of life. And that was when you would serve in the military, if you were a man, up to about the age of 40. And then you go into a stage of life called senex, which to me sounds like a nasal spray. But senex was the latter part of life, so from 40 onwards. It was interesting watching our music team this morning. I was saying to Will, it was like a sort of reformed take that um, this morning. (laughs) But they were all Senex musicians. They were 40 plus. I think that's right, isn't it? Um, Most of us, I think, in this room, if we're honest, are probably in that phase of life. Congratulations to those of you who've yet to reach that part of life. But leadership at this point was mostly of older people in the church. It was mostly those Senex generation, the 40 plus, would be involved in leadership. It's very unusual in this time to find a young leader. Also, Timothy is not in the best of health. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 23, Paul instructs him to take a little wine, a little wine, mind you, for his stomach. And this is because the water supplies at the time were filled with bacteria, and he's probably constantly getting ill. And Paul causes him to address that. He's also, by character, timid, reserved, shying away from anything that seems confrontational. But here's the thing. God's calling is on Timothy's life to be a leader. Despite all of that, despite the odds stacked against him, this is what God has called him to do, and this is what Paul will get behind him in. So today, it doesn't matter if you're a restless person, if you're more emergency than Mallard, if you're the other way around. God calls each of us to play our part in serving his kingdom. So we're going to dive in to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And because this is about young people, we've got three of our young people who read it to us the other night. So just watch it on the screen. If you've got a church Bible and want to turn to it, it's page 1195. In keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. 
I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now in your lives also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed an herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Jesus Christ. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he, of, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my shames. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched, me, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So thank you to our young people there for doing that reading and for pronouncing those names. There was an ulterior motive in getting them to do it. I didn't fancy saying those three names there. So let's just pray again as we open God's word. And do keep that passage in front of you if you can. Yeah, Lord, we thank you for Paul who wrote these words, for Timothy who these words are written to. And we just thank you that they are your word to us today. So just pray that you will open our eyes to receive from you. Receive what it is that you would speak into our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul... He sat in this dark and dingy dungeon. But this is no cause for shame for Paul. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. It means to suffer as Christ has suffered. It means to do whatever we need to do to ensure that the gospel is shared. And he starts with a fairly standard greeting, verse 2. But it's very personal. My dear son. My dear son. That's how he addresses Timothy. Timothy matters to him. He gives thanks for Timothy's faith but also for the faith of his mother and grandmother Lois and Eunice. But then we move on to perhaps what is the most famous verse in this passage. See, Timothy is in some kind of danger. He's not neglected the gospel, he's not turned his back on it, he's not falling into error, but he risks falling into some kind of lukewarmness, that kind of apathy, that that sort of slowness of response to the things of Jesus. We had uh, a week off last week, um, the week after Easter, and um, we were thinking, shall we go away? We we looked at the weather forecast and thought, no, we probably won't. Shall we go out for the day for a few days? And we looked at the weather forecast and I think wisely decided that the seaside probably wouldn't be much fun in the howling gales and wind and rain that we seem to have over Easter. But one thing we did do 
is we went to the range. We really know how to live, don't we? And um, while we were in the range, there was this pizza oven for sale. And this pizza oven was on a bargain price. So we thought, well, we've not spent money going away. Let's buy it. It's amazing. It's a little portable thing about this big. Um, I, I was thinking I might bring it in, apart from we'd fill the room full of smoke, so I could demonstrate it for you. Um, but it makes the most incredible pizzas. You have to taste them to believe how good they are. But anyway, I'm not talking about pizzas. I'm talking about the way that this pizza oven is powered. And it, you put in these little wooden pellets, they're about that big, into a drawer at the back, and then you light them, and it warms everything up. Now, I found from my first rather disastrous attempt to light this wood that you need to blow on these wooden pellets to get them going. Otherwise, they just smolder away, make a lot of smoke, and don't do anything. And the oven never gets hot. It never gets hot enough to be useful. It might get sort of tepid, but it never really gets hot. It needs fanning in to flame. Without the flames, nothing much happens. You know, today, it may be that we're sat here, and we're not turning our backs on Jesus. We're not in some kind of doctrinal problems, or we've not gone away from God. But it may be that we're just slipping into some kind of lukewarmness. And that can happen so easily. Some kind of distraction by anything and everything. It could be that we've got a bit malardy, if you like. We're just plodding along, waddling our way through our Christian lives without any sense of urgency. What Paul will say, though, is we are in a spiritual emergency. We are in a world that, if it doesn't have Jesus, doesn't have the eternal life that actually Jesus will offer to us. And so Paul encourages Timothy. Notice he doesn't tell him off. He doesn't say, you've got to do this. But he says, fan into flame the gift that God has given you. Do something positive. Get back. Fan into flame all that God has placed inside of you. Now, if we were sat here a few decades ago and we were reading a translation of the Bible in use then, it wouldn't have been the word fan that we'd use, but there'd be another word. And it's a word that we only ever use if we ever sing, and can it be? And it's the word quickening. I like this word, quickening. Um, just to explain how it used to be meant, um, the Holy Spirit was described as quickening the heart in a sense of bringing energy and vitality and life to our, our Christian experience. So if you forget everything else about today, can you remember that word quickening and ask for the Holy Spirit to quicken um, his presence within our lives? And so there's, there's this request here, fan into flame the gift which God has given you through the laying on of my hands. Give a sense of urgency to that gift. What gift is it? Well, Paul never tells us. It could be a gift of prophecy. It could be a gift of preaching or teaching. It appears to be something outward focused because then in verse 7, it says, for the Spirit of God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So Paul is reminding Timothy that he needs to be equipped. He needs to be quickened, to become alive, to have that sense of urgency in his gifting to serve the Lord. But what a reminder here. You know, sometimes I think we fall into the trap of thinking, God will call me according to the things that I'm comfortable with. God will call me according to my personality type. God will call me only to do the things that I'm happy doing. Try telling that to Timothy. Timothy was called way outside of his comfort zone. He was called to do things that actually in the natural he wouldn't have wanted to do. And yet here is Paul saying, fan into flame that which God has given you, 
not which is natural to you, but that the Spirit has equipped you and called you to do. So I want to have a look at this theme of being called, really, and I want to look at it in two ways. First of all, in the general call that we have to share the gospel, and then much more briefly in our individual call to be part of that. So let's look at being called to share. I've just put verses 9 and 10 on the screen. Again, I'll just read these. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the Gospels. When that alarm goes on at 3 p.m. this afternoon, can I encourage you to remember that, yes, it's good to react to physical emergencies, but remember that we are in a spiritual emergency, but that there is a good news to share. There is this gospel that we're committed to sharing. The gospel of Jesus is all about grace, isn't it? It's all out of the love of God. If you're here last week, um, Simon was sharing with us about the scars of Jesus, about how the Trinity is forever marked with the price of our salvation. The scars of Jesus that demonstrate the love of God. But the gospel is such good news, isn't it? It's such great news because it's nothing that we've done to deserve it. It's God's rescue to us to bring us back to him. Now these verses are a bit complicated actually. I don't know if you noticed an interesting phrase in there. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. It's one of those things where if I was having a coffee with Paul, I would like to say, go on then, Paul, what do you exactly mean by that phrase? What do you mean by it? It's not the only time that that kind of phrase comes up in the New Testament. Here's another one. This is Peter talking this time. For he, talking about Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. What does it mean? What does this mean? don't know if you've been into Fellwall and seen the Pickering Arms. Anyone know what it says on the side of the Pickering Arms in Fellwall? I'll zoom in so I can elucidate it for you. In the year 923, Edward the Elder founded a city here and called it Fellwall. So you will notice that Fellwall is 1,100 years old this year no longer a city, but it's 1,100 years old. Edward the Elder, anyone know who he was? I think we need to do some basic Anglo-Saxon history somewhere. He was... <laughs> probably. He was the son of Alfred the Great. Son of Alfred the Great. You know the one famed for burning the cakes? Um, but anyway, I want you to imagine that it's the year 923, and you live in Thelwall or Statham or somewhere along what would have been the banks of the River Mersey. Now, at that point in history, the River Mersey was a big salmon river. There had been fish swimming up and down it. You'd have got most of your food from the river. Now, you sat there on a nice hot summer's day. Remember those? You sat there by the side of the river, and you're thinking, I wonder where this river comes from. Would you have known in the year 923? No, I don't think you would. I don't think you've had any clue where this river came from. 
Because to walk to the source of the Mersey, which is about 40 miles up in the Peak District Hills, would have taken at least two days there and two days back, through forests full of bears and wolves and other things. So you might have had conversations with, with people who live nearby saying, do you know where this river comes from? Oh, I've heard it. it's a week away, right over there. Oh, I've heard it comes out of a cave two minutes away. What, whatever, you'd have heard all kinds of speculation. But it's only now that we can travel to the source that we know exactly where it has come from. We know exactly where it has come from. Paul wants Timothy to know the exact origin of the gospel so that there is no confusion. There is nobody thinking we're not sure what this good news is all about. The good news of the gospel is nothing to do with our generation of it. It's nothing to do with our good works. It's nothing at all to do with good thoughts or good intentions. It's not, as some of the Pharisees would go around teaching, that God sent his Messiah because everyone observed the law so well that actually God thought Israel was now worthy. None of that. Nor is it some kind of last-minute emergency plan that God sort of cobbled together on the back of an envelope because Israel had failed. It's none of that. The source of the gospel is the word who was made flesh. Jesus Christ himself, right back into eternity. That's where it comes from. It's from the heart of God himself, from the eternal word that is Jesus. And this gospel of salvation is such good news. It's such good news. And it's all out of grace, and it's all from God, and it's all because of God's love for us. Now, the word gospel simply means good news. That's quite an easy one. It means the good news. But we talk about this complicated word, salvation. And that can sound a bit sort of Christian jargony and a bit religious-y. And sometimes I think we can downgrade that word to almost meaning, well, this is the way I get saved. This is the way I get into heaven. I'm going to leave John Stott to say what it's about because he does it so much better than I can. He says this, salvation is a majestic word, denoting that comprehensive purpose of God by which he justifies, that means made us right before God, sanctifies, makes us holy, first pardoning our offenses and accepting us as righteous in his sight through Christ, then progressively transforming us by his spirit into the image of his son until finally we become like Christ in heaven with new bodies in a new world. And that all comes out of eternity. The source of that is in God himself. And we as church, we are called to be witnesses to this amazing good news, to a message that is so secure that its origins are eternal, to a good news that is so good that we become eternal. Just let that sink in for a minute. That out of eternity, this message comes so that actually we can be part of it for all eternity. And yet we can feel a bit like Timothy when it comes to sharing the gospel. A bit like Timothy. We may feel timid. We may feel shy. We may not have the words to say. I don't know if you've been in a Marks and Spencers recently. Um, I don't know whether they still have this, actually. But I was walking down the the stairs in M&S. I think it was in Altrigham. And they had this big thing painted on the wall that said, Plan A, net zero carbon emissions by 2040, because there is no plan B. Now, it's, it's a marketing campaign. But you know, the gospel is God's plan A. Always has been. It is God's plan A. And you know what? The church, we are God's plan A and only plan to share that gospel. With all our failings, with all our bruises, with all our disagreements, our bad habits that we've picked up over 2,000 years, we are the ones commissioned to share this amazing good news. And so Paul writes to Timothy. 
He's concerned that Timothy needs to fan into flame all that God has given him. Paul is also going to show his deep concern for the church in the Roman world. You know, it's right that we're concerned about the church, isn't it? If we look at the church in our own day, particularly in the West, it's right that we are concerned about it. Because just like the the church in the ancient world, we face many challenges. There are doctrinal ones, there are ethical ones. We face aging congregations, all kinds of things. And yet there are many things to be encouraged about. Timothy was a young man with a heart for the gospel. You know, one of the things that, that still intrigues me, and this happened to me just two weeks ago, is somebody came to me and said, oh, you're young to be a minister. (laughs) Now, I could take that when I started as a minister, because that was 13 years ago, or no longer ago than that now, 2009, 14 years ago. And at that point, I was quite young. I was in my early 30s, relatively young. You know, if I'd been a head teacher at that point, people would have said, oh, you're quite young to be a head teacher. Now, I'm at that age now where I will take whatever compliments people give me. And if people want to think I look young, fantastic. But actually, I think it highlights a serious problem. We don't have younger people coming up as ministers. Certainly not within the Baptist world. Do you know how old the youngest Baptist minister is in the NWBA at the moment? 35. That is the youngest. Now, when I went to train in 2009, there was a generation under me coming up. So I think the youngest person in college was 23, somebody who'd just gone into work for a couple of years, decided God had called them to ministry, and there were people 23, 25, 27, right the way through. You know what? I think it's a real concern that we should be praying into, that God would raise up more Timothys, more people who are committed to giving their lives over to the Lord Jesus. Now this morning, it's great, we've had George leading our service. George is still in his 20s. Whee! You don't often get a cheer just for being young. But let's honor those amongst us and let's encourage those generations who are coming up just like Paul did. For George, for Sarah, for those other people, youth leaders, whoever they are, who are both young in the way that they're serving, but also encouraging the generation below them to get on board with the gospel. I've told this story before, but we can all play a part in this. Um, When I was 9 or 10, there was this lady in our church, and she must have been, I don't know, 60 or so at that point. I think she's still alive. She's in her late 90s now, an incredible woman of faith. And she came to me quite regularly and said, I've got a memory verse for you to learn, or I've got this for you to do. And I can still remember this. She came to me one day and she said, I want you to learn the books of the New Testament in order. She said, it's one of the most useful things you'll do in Bible study because then you can just quickly find out where any book is. And she said, if you can prove to me next Sunday that you've done it, I will buy you a big pack of Mars bars. (laughs) Now, there's another lady in church who used to just buy me Mars bars randomly. Now, that was great, but this one was better because actually this just didn't show me that she was, you know, cared about Mars bars, but that she actually cared about my spiritual life. She cared about my journey. And so what did I do? I went away, I learnt the books of the New Testament in order, and I got a packet of Mars bars. But you know, there are lots of things I have forgotten about what I was told in Sunday school, but I will always remember those Mars bars. Sometimes, the value of the things that we do is not measurable in human terms, but has eternal consequences. So can I encourage you today, if you are of an age where there is a generation under you, And all of us in the room qualify as that. 
think, how can I encourage people who are younger to be faithful to Jesus? There might be one exception who hasn't got a generation under them. I've just noticed somebody in the corner. Um, But most of us are of that age. Most of us are of that age. How can we encourage those who are coming up, those Timothys in our churches? You know, Paul's heart, obviously, is for all ages. But if we don't get generations coming up underneath the one that we're in, the church has a very short shelf life. Unfortunately, and too late, sadly, many churches in this land are realizing that that is the case and are closing their doors. How can we today be those who encourage? Because when we do that, the good news keeps being shared. When we do that, actually there is a future, a future for our churches and a future for sharing the gospel. Moving on, and much more briefly, we are personally commissioned. Think back a few weeks ago, we were talking about spiritual gifts, about how God, by his spirit, equips individual Christians to serve God in all kinds of different ways. Now, the church is never meant to be a professional organization. If if we ever become that, we've really lost the plot. We're a family of different people doing different things. But sometimes God may have placed a gift in us that actually, if we're honest, is lying dormant. We may have used to serve, but actually we've stopped. Or we've not got going, or something has tripped us up, and we've sort of, um, yeah, just, just not in that place at the moment. It may be that that's because, like Timothy, we feel that we're too young to do that. Or it may be more like Moses, that actually we feel we've got too old to do something. Don't ever think that age is a barrier to serving God. Moses was just starting out in his late 80s. But actually, God calls all of us. We may think that our health is too poor to serve God, either our mental health or our physical health. Timothy was in that bracket too, yet God still called him. We may think that our personality type doesn't seem to fit with what God is saying to us. But actually, God will equip us if he's called us to do something. It might be that we've just got a bit lukewarm and we've started filling our lives with other things and we've started to blank the voice of God out. So I wonder today, is there something that God has called you to do that needs fanning into flame? Is there a gift that the Spirit has deposited within you that actually at the moment is just lying dormant? You know, it might be that God has called you to be a prayer warrior and actually you've stopped praying. If that's you, can I encourage you? Seek the quickening, let's have that word again, the quickening of the Spirit that you would become somebody of prayer again. If it's youth work, Get stuck in, whatever it is. If it's administration, make sure we're doing it well. Fan those things into flame. The instruction to us is the same as to Timothy. Fan into flame. Seek God. Seek the quickening of the Holy Spirit. See what God is doing and join in. don't know about you, though, but I can read verses like this and passages like this and think, well, that's okay for you, Paul. You know, you were a man capable of writing the book of Romans. I'm not quite in that league. And it can seem like what Paul is suggesting is so daunting and it's, it's so unachievable. I found this image um, the other day. I quite like this. You know, sometimes we can feel that Paul is calling us to do the thing on the right, whereas actually what God is saying is just do the thing on the left. Take that little step, whatever that little step is, to be that person that God has called you to be. We're in a spiritual emergency. We're in a spiritual emergency. We live in a time as all times where the gospel 
needs to be proclaimed. And a church alight with the Spirit, a church where the Spirit is moving, where the gospel is being shared, can make such a difference. Verse 14, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. I just want to leave you with two things to think about. First of all, do we have that passion like Paul did for the gospel of Jesus, an all-consuming passion for the good news? Do we have a sense of calling on our own lives that needs to be found into flame? If that's you today, can I encourage you, at the end of our service, our prayer team will be available. Perhaps just go and ask somebody to pray with you that the Holy Spirit will do that quickening work. Remember that word, that quickening work in your lives. That it will be fanned into flame, whatever it is that God has placed into you. And that we too can keep going in the message of sharing the gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the reminder from this passage of just how great the good news is. That we are brought from darkness into the light and life and immortality through all that you have done. And I want to pray this morning that perhaps if we have drifted a little bit in our own personal lives or in our life as a church, Lord, that you would fan into flame that that you would have us do. Lord, would you do a work in us, a fresh work in us by your Holy Spirit? Just leave a, just a moment of quiet. It may be just at this point you want to seek the Spirit in your own life, praying for that fanning into flame of whatever it is that God has placed in you. Just a moment of quiet. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame through the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God, that gave, the Spirit that God gave us, does not make us timid, but it gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Lord, would you make that verse a reality in our lives, that we would be people of power, of love, and of self-discipline, not ashamed of the gospel but rather eager to see it worked out in our own lives and shared in our communities. And we ask it for Jesus' sake.